Hey, grace and peace to y'all. It's Captain Roger from the Salvation Army's Grass Valley Corps in uh, Grass Valley, California, and uh, I'm just happy that you are joining us here for our worship and study time today. Grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Acts chapter 5. That's where we're going to be uh, spending our time today. Now, it is very important that if someone tells you they're going to read to you from Scripture, that you have a Bible handy. I mean, I'm going to read to you the things that I want you to hear, right, in case you don't have a Bible or whatever, but you should always check. Now, you may be using a different translation, your words may be different, but the meaning behind them should still be the same, but you want to verify anytime someone tells you something's from the Bible. I mean, we're all going to, as preachers, we stand up, we say, you know, this is going to change your life. Well, you know, you better make sure that what we're telling you is what's actually in there. I'm not saying that we set out to tell lies or anything like that, but we do uh, make the same mistakes as everyone else. We could misread something. We could uh, misinterpret what's there. You always verify what anyone tells you, right? Trust, but verify. And Luke tells us a story in Acts chapter 5 that is a very important one. And it's one we've maybe forgotten about over the years. It's one that includes some vital lessons we should take note of and remember. And I'm going to stop us here and there, share some information, and try to ensure that you see the point that I see. You may or may not agree, and that's okay. It is your right to be wrong if you wish. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, maybe I'll just start the story. We talked last week about what the early followers of Jesus were doing. The apostles, they would gather each day in the colonnade around the main temple courtyard to tell the people about Jesus and his radical idea about loving and caring for each and every person. Women and men worshipped and taught and shared life side by side, which was a dramatic departure from the approach taken by the prevailing cultures of the day. And the, the Jesus followers there, they performed signs and wonders, we're told, dramatic healings in some cases, which they attributed to the name of Jesus. And people were impressed by them. And they were showing them respect and attention, which was something that some of those who had a hand in Jesus' arrest and execution found that they couldn't abide. We are in Acts chapter 5, and we are beginning at verse 17. All right. Hopefully you're all with me now. And then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Uh, now, the first century Jewish historian, a guy named Josephus, good heavens, a guy named Josephus, he said uh, there were three major sects in Judaism back in those days. There were the Essenes, who believed in isolation and in finding holiness through being apart from the world. Just completely separated. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were uh, a popular movement of people who believed that if everyone simply followed a few hundred simple rules for living, there could be enough holiness in the world to cause God to send a Messiah who would help Israel conquer its enemies and usher in the time of final judgment. And then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees was a, a group of folks that was made up mostly of the priests and the political leaders of the day and uh, folks who were in their camp. Um, the Sadducees, they were the wealthy. They were the elite. They tended to pull the strings that ruled their part of the world. And as a general rule in their group, they didn't believe in spirits or resurrection. Uh, what they believed in was adhering to the law of Moses as precisely as 
possible. This was their path to holiness. They rejected debate and they shunned any new teachings, believing that holiness had already been defined and there was no reason or method or purpose to change that. Now, Jesus, who often said things like, well, it's been said this, but I say that, as a way of uh, reinterpreting the old teachings to have new meanings, Jesus was not one of their favorite people. And the idea that he might have been raised from the dead the way his followers claimed drove the Sadducees absolutely mad. They were not particularly a popular group with the people. And seeing that the members of this Jesus movement were popular seems to have really gotten under their skin. And so they had the apostles locked up in a very public way, thinking that this would put an end to the nonsense. Right? Look at verse 19, though. It says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. (laughs) So if they had been at all discouraged by their short incarceration, having this angel show up and turn them loose seems to have bolstered their spirits. They have no trouble just going right back to where they were doing what they were doing. As those first golden rays of sunlight begin to spill in from the east, they are right there teaching the people about the way of Jesus. And go back to the scripture. It says, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. I think there's some stuff we need to explain here. Um, The Sanhedrin, first of all. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Israel. Uh, If every member of the Sanhedrin was present, there would be 71 of them. But if even 23 of them could be gathered together, that was enough to hold a trial and pass judgment. But they met daily, except on the Sabbath. So most or all of them, of the great Sanhedrin here in Jerusalem, most or all of them were usually there. And this body was made up of scribes and elders and priests, all represented on the council. But the Sadducees had a solid majority, including the high priest, who served as the president of the Sanhedrin and also cast the tie-breaking vote if one happened to be needed. On this day, they gathered early in the day, as they usually did, and they called for their prisoners, expecting that a night in the cells might have made them a little more receptive to the council's authority. You, yeah, about to go on uh, authority riff there, but you know what? I'm going to stick to the point. Stick to the point. What they found, though, is that the cells were empty, and the guards who were on the gate didn't know how the cells were empty. Just the, the, the dozen or so men who were in there, they're gone. This would have been uh, more than a little embarrassing for the temple guards and for their captain. He was probably trying to work out how best to punish his guards for their failure in a way that would shift the blame of failure cleanly off of his own shoulders and entirely onto theirs when something even stranger happened. Look at verse 25. Then someone came in and said, look, 
the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. But they did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. <laughs> uh, sir, um, didn't we lock you up last night? Hey, could you, uh, could you come on in here? Yeah. Can you imagine me and the guy who gets to bring this message? Hey, those men you publicly locked up for preaching about Jesus? Found them. They're right back in the temple preaching about Jesus to a crowd. A uh, big crowd. People who were probably hearing them tell this story about this angel who came to set them free so that they could come back and teach. I bet they were loving that, man. And now the guard needed to come in and take them away. To say this was a delicate situation... That's a pretty serious understatement. Uh, just like now, when tensions are running high and law enforcement needs to step in, there's a risk that things could just go sideways, right? I mean, you get one wrong word, one perceived slight or injury, real or imagined, and that could be all it takes for a rock to fly out of the crowd. And then the, the guards try to retaliate, and the next thing you know, there's a riot going on. Now, you could be sure... That as the captain of the guard made his re-arrests, he did so as delicately as possible. There would be time enough for any payback for this embarrassment later, once they were out of the public eye. I'm sure that's what was going through his head. Um, verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priests. We gave you strict orders not to teach in, his, in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Yeah, what he's doing here, these are the charges that are lodged against the apostles. They've defied the specific orders of the Sanhedrin by teaching in the name of Jesus. They've placed the blame for Jesus' death on the heads of these rulers as well. And both of these, these are serious charges. The second one in particular, it's an accusation of murder. And Peter is going to respond in a way that makes it seem like he somehow has put the Sanhedrin on trial instead of the other way around. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter started with the same thing that he said at the first trial when they had brought Peter and John in to question them about the man who'd been lame being healed. We're doing what God tells us, not what people tells us. That's that's the defense. God said to do this, so we're doing this. And then he tells them again why he and the other apostles are preaching in the name of Jesus. It's because God raised Jesus from the dead. He said, you know, you can't have much better reason than that to talk about someone, can you? God raised him from the dead. That certainly seems like something that should be talked about, Right? Now, why wouldn't they want the apostles to share about that? Oh, yeah, Peter throws in, Oh, you remember Jesus, right? The one you killed by having him nailed to a tree? So there's that accusation coming back at them again. And it isn't exactly what you think it is. It's not like Peter's saying, Hey, you had this guy killed, like it's a surprise to anyone. The execution of Jesus wasn't a secret. 
The Sanhedrin convicted him and had him sent to Pontius Pilate in public. And Pilate very publicly executed him during Jerusalem's busiest time of year. There wasn't a person in Jerusalem or any of the surrounding regions or most of the country who wasn't aware of the fact that Jesus had been executed at the insistence of the Sanhedrin. What Peter's actually accusing them of is even bigger than just the death of a man. His implication is that they did or should have known that Jesus was God's promised Messiah and that God had to step in to raise Jesus up because they killed him instead of exalting him. Why do I say that? Well, the Sanhedrin, see, they're not just a legislative body. They were the religious leadership. They determined whether a thing was holy or unholy. And during the first century, they were the body that ruled on dozens of wannabe messiahs. Guys who would build up a following and claim to be the one that everyone was waiting for. The Sanhedrin investigated. They looked for evidence. They looked for signs and wonders. And then they ruled whether a movement was holy or heresy. You know who performed a lot of signs and wonders? Jesus. You know who the Sanhedrin investigated and found him to be doing exactly what it was they were looking for? Jesus. But Jesus scared them. He disrupted the order that they had built. He risked this fragile detente that the Jewish leaders thought they had established with their Roman overlords. So rather than seek God's direction, they sought to remain in Caesar's good graces, and so they had Jesus killed. Instead of obeying God, they chose to obey human beings. Peter says, You killed him, but even so, God exalted him, so that all of Israel can repent and be forgiven. And then he kind of throws in that little shot at the end. He's like, yeah, We're all witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit that God gives to those who obey him. You see that? What he's saying is, you know, you're not seeing this, but that's because you're not following God. <laughs> Which seems to have touched a nerve. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Now, isn't that what we all want to do to our critics? Or even just those that we disagree with? Just shut them down or shut them up? Put an end to their point of view? End their way of life? Just finish them off. Ban their books. Outlaw their behaviors. Have them executed for their actions. In short... Escalate any conflict, vilify your opponents, and then find ways to derail or destroy them so that you can remain comfortable and unchanged. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I watch the news too. Hmm. What we really need in the middle of a story like this, especially one that fits so tightly into the narrative that we each live inside of today, what we really need is some kind of a wise voice who's going to rise up and inject a little reason to cool things down a bit before someone dies. Someone like Gamaliel the Elder. Take a look at verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up into the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Now, Gamaliel, he'd been a rabbi with authority for several years at this point. According to some sources, he was the grandson of Hillel, perhaps the greatest teacher of the Pharisees. Whether he was or not, 
because we, you know, from this side of history, it's a little too far. We can't tell you for certain if that's the uh, case. Whether he was or not, Gamaliel, he was a force in his community. We know that for sure. And as it says here, he was highly respected. In fact, after he passed away, about 20 years after the incident we're looking at today, um, it was said that when Gamaliel died, it was as if the glory of the law had ceased and purity and abstinence had died with him. He was one of these guys who, just like E.F. Hutton, when he speaks, everyone listens. Verse 35 says that Gamaliel addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and for about 400 men, I'm sorry, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel, he might have been reminding them of a common saying. The Mishnah records uh, Rabbi Johann the Sandalmaker saying, Any assembling together for the sake of heaven shall in the end be established. But any that is not for the sake of heaven shall not in the end be established. Or to put that in a little easier to understand terms, if God's involved in a movement, it's going to prosper. And if he's not, it'll die. And that's pretty much all they're trying to say there. And if I may interject for just a moment, I think this is brilliant advice. I think it's brilliant advice. Luke, he's certainly portraying it in a positive light here, but beyond that, stop and think about what it would mean to embrace this view. How much money and time and energy has been wasted fighting against things when we could be presenting a better witness by leaving other things be while we focus on on loving others as we love ourselves. Well, we put our resources into doing the work of Jesus in a world desperate for healing instead of squandering it all in a fight against something which we cannot know God's plan for, no matter which of our buttons it's pushing. Gamaliel's words seem to have brought some calm to the council, though it doesn't seem to have fully gotten them to stand down. Verse, uh, verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Uh, flogging, uh, flogging was a public shaming tool. A person would be taken out and whipped 39 times. It was harsh. Sometimes there were people who died from it, but generally it was just a painful reminder that you had somehow crossed community standards in some way, and you were expected to conform to those standards from that point on. It was uh, 39 lashes because God had set a limit of 40, and there was always the possibility that someone might miscount. So the maximum was always one less than the limit, you know, just in case. So with Gamaliel's encouragement, the Sanhedrin 
they decided to let the apostles live. Now, they obviously, they've still treated them harshly. They flogged them. They ordered them again to keep Jesus to themselves. What do you think? Are they going to do that? Yeah, it's not likely, is it? Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Why would they rejoice about the beating that they took? Well, the Sanhedrin had just unwittingly confirmed the truth of Jesus' power and foreknowledge. After all, Mark shared this in his gospel, Mark uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 9. Jesus told them that this exact thing would happen. He said, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. But even before then, Jesus had taught that his message of peace was going to bring out the worst in those who refused to accept it. In John 15, he said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And here, here, the very body of leaders who Jesus uh, had been tortured and killed by, they're trying to silence the apostles by having them beaten for daring to speak the name of Jesus where people could hear it. Just like Jesus said, and just as Peter had implied, they don't know the one who sent Jesus, and they don't recognize that the same one is directing the apostles in what they're teaching and doing. I'm sure that as they helped one another home, after being flogged, they were rejoicing both for this confirmation of the truth that Jesus had shared and because it definitely reminded them of something Jesus had taught as part of the sermon he'd preached on a mountain outside of Capernaum in the very early days of his ministry. Jesus, in the beginning of that, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not only were they not discouraged by the way they were treated, the apostles and all of the early church with them were encouraged. Encouraged. They continued to meet openly in the temple each day, just the way they had been. They continued to speak the name of Jesus. They continued to gather in each other's homes to share meals and stories about Jesus and discussions of how to live out his teaching, and they did so joyfully. Now, is there anything in this that matters to us today? I think so. I think that the very idea that we must leave any fighting to God rather than lashing back at our enemies isn't one that any of us are comfortable with. But it is what Jesus advocated, and it is what we are seeing his first followers live out. And that doesn't mean we roll over and give up. That's not what they did. Instead, we should aggressively pursue loving others the way Jesus did, focusing on bringing healing instead of wasting resources fighting back or trying to force others to end things that we don't like or don't want them to do. 
Our mandate is to wage love, not to fight against anyone. We are to advocate peace in all things. Are you with me? Or are you at least willing to try? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, guide us with your Holy Spirit. Lead us on paths that your Father created us to walk. Help us to recognize our tendency to lash out when challenged or when faced by things that we don't like or don't understand. Teach us to turn whatever anger or confusion into energy that we use to advance the message of love that you taught those first disciples to live out. Show us how to obey God in all things, even when doing so may put us in harm's way. Remind us of the example of Peter and the other apostles so that we too can find ways to always rejoice and always work to share your name, Jesus, and to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in this world, remember, you have nothing to fear because God is already there. Just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you today. I'll see you next time.